0: Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back. This is your host, John Powers. Today, we have a special episode live from the Solar, Storage, and Finance USA Forum in New York City. We had a panel discussion on terawatts and trillions. The focus was this on how do we get to the trillions of dollars we need to hit our climate change mitigation goals. We have a really top-tier panel, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. My name is John Powers. I am uh, the co-founder of Clean Capital. And at Clean Capital, we are working to accelerate investment into the clean energy space by bringing efficiency into the market. Uh, Over the last 15 months, we've gone from having around $50 under management to half a billion uh, because we have a platform that's helping us to uh, screen, acquire, and then manage distributed generation assets. So we've gone from about 8 megawatts to about 200 megawatts and are continuing to grow with partners like BlackRock uh, and Carvel Investors and other institutional investors. But I'm also the the host of a podcast called Experts Only, and Experts Only focuses on the intersection of energy- Innovation and Finance, and that's what I'm here to talk about today. We have a phenomenal set of speakers, which I'll get to in a second and allow them to sort of introduce themselves as we get through the questions. But really, the mission we have today uh, at the Solar Storage and Finance USA Conference is to set the stage for the conversations later. We're specifically even challenged to really talk about how how we can start to think big about this market. That's why it's called Terawatts and Trillions. Um, but before we think big, I do want to challenge us to step back a decade. And there's a first, there's a poll, uh, first poll I they can pull up, I ask you to, to take a look. And the question for the poll is, were you in the solar energy storage or clean energy industry 10 years ago? And I I certainly was not. I asked our, uh, our, our crew to raise their hand if they were 10 years ago. So... Let's look back a decade. In 2008, the total capacity of solar grew 17%. It grew by 1.265 megawatts the entire year, right? In Q1 of 2019, we grew uh, by 2.7 gigawatts in solar PV, just in the first quarter alone. So what does that mean as the market has evolved I uh, wrote an article a few years ago in the evolution of solar finance, looking back at sort of 2000, 2008, 2009, when uh, you just had the Energy Security Act passed by President Bush in a Democratic House and Senate it established things like the investment tax credit. You had the influx of capital um, around the financial crisis, the government capital to help move, um, the Reinvestment Act to help move shovel-ready projects forward. And you had a very inefficient market Uh, for things like solar, right? One, people didn't know these panels worked. They didn't know if there was enough sun in in New York to make them work. Very few people had heard of a power purchase agreement. And you're trying to convince a CFO of a big box store that they should put this on their rooftop, right? Flash forward, and the investors in that space were high risk, high reward, meaning high cost of capital. But to continue to see this market scale we needed to bring down that cost of capital and really scale in the capital that's going to drive us to the solutions We need to face regarding climate change and the timing is couldn't be any more critical You know, we're con- continuing to emit green- greenhouse gases at a rate that'll result in fifty four trillion dollars in damage by early by early 2040 There are deep capital resource needs and institutional investors are just beginning to move into the space Uh, Some of the investors on the stage today have been doing this for a while, but there's others that have been talking about, for instance, divesting from fossil fuels, but not many are taking that next step. For instance, the Harvard Endowment announced earlier this year they're going to invest in cryptocurrency, but they think clean energy is still too risky of a a bet. But that's what we face. Ceres put out a report a few years ago, it's going to take us a trillion dollars of investment a year to help keep ourselves below two degrees. That's a significant uh, uptick from where we are today. But we are gonna talk today about how we get there because the the global trends are really clear. The technology's proven, unicorns like energy storage are following in the path that solar had set, moving us to distributed generation with certain policies that are in place and helping it scale. By 2035, more than 50% of global power generation is expected to be renewables. Solar and wind are the cheapest forms of power in two-thirds of the world today. This April, for the first time ever, renewable energy supplied more power to America's grid than coal. Amazing transformations that are happening uh, both here in the US, but also globally. Thanks to leaders like Alicia and others setting the policy stage, but thanks to many folks in the room who are helping to break these deals apart and bringing the capital in to move it forward. So the opportunities are immense, the challenges are immense. So we're gonna start to talk through those today, and I'm gonna open up with our first speaker, and I'm gonna have each of the speakers introduce themselves through a question. That way I'm not just gonna sit here and read bios for you, but you can find their bios in your book. Uh, Mona's the, head of global, the global head of energy and infrastructure for Pillsbury, Winthrop, Sean Pittman, one of our, our sponsors today. So Mona, you know, we're seeking tremendous, we're seeing tremendous momentum in this space as well as a cultural awakening around climate change. You're a really well-respected voice in the, in the marketplace as well as the media, being on CNN, Bloomberg, and other places. Can you discuss a little bit of the macro trends you're seeing in the market and maybe set the stage of where the market is today?
1: Sure. D- delighted to. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? We're lucky that it's uh, we don't have the torrential rains that were predicted <laughs> this morning. I want to talk, uh, yeah, just globally on a macro level. Obviously, the emphasis today is going to be on uh, solar and storage. But I'm gonna go even more macro and just talk about, just briefly about uh, renewable energy. As Alicia and John have emphasized, we've seen a real big uh, just sea growth of change in uh, renewable energy investments. Um, There was 350 billion, uh, this was one of the numbers that was quoted to me um, in 2018, just in uh, renewable energy. We're seeing the entrance of more strategic investors in the space, and um, we're, for example, in Europe, we have uh, Anji has announced that they're going to be investing between $12.5 twelve point five billion and thirteen point five billion in renewables and behind the meter solutions. Enel is saying that they're going to be developing eleven point six. Gigawatts of uh, solar capacity in 2021, and meanwhile, uh, here in the U.S., uh, there has been uh, what has been reported as uh, 12.5 billion just in the uh, the solar space uh, with the strategic investors. We're also seeing a lot more uh, financial sponsors entering the space. Uh, KKR agreed to make a uh, 900 million energy uh, investment in uh, next era. We also have uh, governments that are actively becoming more involved, such as um, in Europe, uh, we have um, Greece and France have announced new energy plans to promote renewables. while in the. US we have local government uh, and states, have continued to drive the uh, renewable progress with RPS and uh, CPS standards. We have um, states such as New Mexico, California, Hawaii, Washington, Puerto Rico, uh, that have 100% carbon-free goals. And um, here in the US, we also have a lot more corporations that are entering into the space. We have over uh, 200 uh, Fortune 500 companies that have launched renewable uh, and sustainable programs and uh, impact investing. Uh, And then, you know, while we're also seeing that the growth in this space has created some challenges for the legacy uh, fossil fuel industry, the Norwegian government has proposed a phase out of uh, certain oil and gas uh, exploration and production, and the German government has announced plans to shut all 84 of its coal power plants by uh, 2038. From a um, just to speak a little bit about the the energy storage space. That has, uh, you know, Forbes was quoted as saying that they expect this to be a $150 billion industry by 2023. This was, um, this was uh, in an article today by Forbes. Um, the two drivers that we're seeing for storage um, are the mobility market and also the cost declines in the space. We're seeing... Um, real leadership in four distinct countries. Uh, the first one would, uh, ha- is China. The second one is India. The third is the U.S. And uh, the last, we're just combining all the European countries, the EU.
0: That's an interesting ranking.
1: Yeah. So I think that's a kind of an overview yeah. of both the, uh, the space, just to set the stage a little bit. John, if that's okay?
0: No, that's great. It's really helpful. And I think, you know, I think one of the untold stories here domestically is what's happening in China. You know, 40% of all panels deployed last year were deployed in China. They're they're growing at phenomenal rates. I want to transition now to to Rail, who's the Director of Real Assets and Infrastructure and Renewable Power at BlackRock. Uh, BlackRock, in full disclosure, is an investor of of clean capital. So as we read you some of these numbers, uh, some of those numbers are coming to us, into our projects. Uh, Keep them coming. Um, BlackRock's the world's largest money manager with over $6 trillion in assets under management uh, and boasts more than $5 billion in asset under management in renewables with over 250 wind and solar projects, both uh, domestically and, and globally. Riel, can you give some history on BlackRock's involvement of the space and you know why is one of the, the leading asset managers uh, taking such a, a progressive view on renewables?
2: Sure, ha- happy to. And thanks, everyone, for having me this morning. I think if you look at... Larry, when he's on his pulpit, you know, he's a very vocal advocate for the pricing of carbon externalities. So it's something that's close to his heart. And it goes beyond just pricing carbon externalities. If you think about the DNA of BlackRock, it's primarily a risk shop. So the first thing they think about when they think about any kind of investment is downside risk. They're not thinking about knocking it out of the park. Their orientation as kind of a bond house is always to the downside. So, you know, across our client business, which obviously is huge in the insurance universe and the pension universe with long dated asset liability matches, they're very focused on the impacts of carbon, thinking about kind of the increased, I guess, volatility in weather environments, weather patterns. And so it's pretty natural when you when you take that kind of top-down view that they're as big as they are in renewables. But they took the plunge over eight years ago, back in 2010-11, to start the infrastructure business at BlackRock. Um, by taking a team out of a, a kind of a private equity family office that had its roots in, in core infrastructure, but had over time migrated to clean energy and renewables. So I guess I am one of the people that's just about been in solar for 10 years. But at BlackRock, that's the way they wanted to start the infrastructure business. And I guess if you objectively think about BlackRock, as just six plus trillion, nearly seven trillion now you would think a big generalist fund is what makes sense, but for them they wanted to do something that was sector specific, that targeted kind of a growth area, and that you know, build an expert and industry team of folks from the space around it. So we've got technical folks, we've got developer owner operators on our team globally. And there's, you know, there's 45 of us just dedicated to deploying that, that five billion. Um, we're in the market raising our fifth global product targeting the space. And it really is, for them, it's that just longer-term view. They, they don't think three years, five years. They think 20 years. They think about what's coming down the track. And they're trying to plough a furrow that they felt you know, wasn't adequately addressed. I think you know, if you look at any infrastructure manager now, they don't need to be a renewable specialist. Renewables additions for the last five years, year over year, have been north of 50%. So if you're in any generalist infrastructure or power fund, you're in renewables. That was the narrative around where the market was going and they wanted to build a dedicated team. We've obviously supplemented that group. We now have 25 billion in infrastructure across debt and equity, across power more broadly um, with certain regional strategies, but you know, we're gonna to continue to grow, but equally we're staying strong in the renewables dedicated space.
0: Just a quick follow up. You guys are our, your fifth raise in the structure and is there any clear, I mean raising money is never easy first of all, but is there any clear momentum building you know, after fund after fund in this space? Yeah, there is. I think it's always, you know, the market's not staying
2: still. So what worked in 2011 doesn't work in 2019 Uh, from a cost of capital perspective, from a risk perspective. Back then it was, you know, taking construction risk was a differentiator. That's not enough anymore. Understanding solar was a nuance that we had that others didn't have. That's not enough anymore. Um, So for us, it's now moving closer to the customer. It's moving to the distributed model. It's thinking about solar, solar plus storage, standalone storage. Offshore as kind of the next wave of things, and again, we've we've dipped our toe in most of these things over the last eight years. But you know, that's that's we're constantly looking out three to five years to try and stay relevant. So our first fund was kind of the rise of renewables. Second was probably mainstreaming, and this global fund is really about climate infrastructure. So it's the broader transition of the energy mix, not just in generation but the overall consumption towards electrification.
0: Uh, That's that's a really fascinating frame. It sort of maps the the growth of the industry. So uh, Sims Duncan is a senior director in project finance and M&A at LightSource BP. First of all, he's a Navy guy, so I'm not going to hold that against you, uh, Sims, but I I will say go Army in in a month. (laughs) Go Navy. You've got incredible chops in the project finance space, and we'll talk about some more of that later. But, you know, first of all, how is BP an oil and gas super major sort of approaching the solar market? And how does that approach differ from others in the space?
3: So I, I guess I'd start out by um, by saying that uh, uh, you know what what we observe is a real dichotomy between some of the the uh, the European sort of super major oil companies and the American oil major companies. So if you think about Total and Shell and BP, all of them uh, going back some number of years have taken pretty proactive steps into the renewable space. ConocoPhillips, Exxon, not quite so much, uh, and I think a lot of that is is probably driven by their shareholder bases which are quite different in the pressure that they feel and the uh, sensitivity to, to the climate change issue perhaps being a little bit more, uh, a little heightened in, uh, in Europe as compared to the US. So we're, we're seeing, um, we're seeing those, those companies and certainly BP. This is BP's kind of second, um, uh, second uh, trip to the plate uh, with solar for those who have been around. I, I was one who voted uh, yes in, in the poll. I have been in the industry for, for more than 10 years and I have been around to see uh, BP play at, uh, at this game once before.
0: We own some of those original BP solar projects.
3: So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so I, I guess I'd, that would be my, uh, my first comment. My uh, my second comment would be that there are different approaches uh, to to playing in this space, and, and I'm very happy uh, to be affiliated with BP uh, in this regard. You see some of the majors... Take kind of a venture capital approach, make acquisitions or small investments in a number of different companies to just kind of see what works and and what floats. BP has taken the opposite approach really, which is to uh, select a platform in the solar industry on a global basis, lend its brand to that that platform, that being Lightsource now Lightsource BP, uh, and really pour a lot of support uh, into that platform. So we at Lightsource BP are are pleased to be one of the very very few companies uh, in the in the BP umbrella that is actually branded uh, with BP on a global basis, and we are their exclusive solar provider uh, globally. Uh, so it's gonna it's uh, you know a BP uh, doesn't have quite the balance sheet maybe of a of a BlackRock, but uh, I think it'll take some some uh, big oil and gas uh, balance sheets and, and other balance sheets coming into space to advance the industry.
0: So unique focus coming into BP a second round, right? Where, how how is that experience from the previous time BP was playing in solar effect, So, your, your day-to-day now?
3: Uh, well, we see a, <laughs> I guess you could look at it in, in well, the, the, the first, BP's first approach to the solar industry was of course a manufacturing approach. Uh, that didn't work out so well when the Chinese kind of took over um, right. a, a lot of the uh, a huge market share of manufacturing, uh, and they're taking a, a development approach, which I do think is kind of closer to home for an uh, an energy development company that has a hundred year history uh, in the industry. Uh, that that's one thing I'll say, and then and then secondly, um, you know what we feel every day, of course, is a tremendous amount of support, balance sheet support, uh, introductions. Uh, in the marketplace, just a lot of support uh, coming to us uh, from BP, and there's just no question that they're committed to the industry uh, for the long term. The, it, BP is not going to fail a second time in this industry. Well, that's great.
0: So we're going to do another round of questions, and I'm going to open it up to the audience. So if you've got questions, uh, hopefully more active than the last last open session, please think about them, and I'll open, open back up to, to the audience. But I do want to go back to that series study And the the fact that we need to get to a trillion dollars of investment to hit our climate goals and and ask just a poll to the audience, how long will it take for us to reach a trillion dollars of investment in clean energy? Less than five years, five to 10 years, or more than 10 years. So there's continual momentum in the space. We're seeing new players each quarter bringing down the cost of capital. But Mona, my first question is for you with, I mean, you're seeing so many transactions and the deal ecosystem, has really grown and scaled over the last decade. But now we're talking about a need to even triple that, right? If we've got $350 billion this year or last year, you know, if we're going to get to a trillion a year, is the ecosystem ready for that? What's got to happen to really scale the deal side of this to be able to get that much capital out the door?
1: Well, I think that from there's going to be um, more, there's, I I also have been one of those people that's been in the industry for more than 10 years. And when I first started doing deals in this space, it was over 20 years ago. And there were uh, very few specialists in the space. So there were very few, like third party, like accountants and engineers, IEs, of course, law firms. And as I've seen this space mature, we're seeing more proliferation of these uh, third-party like support uh, providers. We're also seeing, I'm seeing a massive shakeout, too, because those law firms and those um, accounting firms and those IEs that are really top of their game are the ones that are doing, like us at Pillsbury, Soup to nuts, everything. And we know everything in this space. We've seen it all. We don't have to ask someone to help us, accounting firm or whatever, to um, understand what the, for example, the, the, the tax credits. So you're seeing a shakeout. There's a massive shakeout right now. There's a lot of movement. And uh, the stronger players are the ones that are known and that are succeeding and that really do everything soup to nuts in the space. So that's, what, that's kind of what we're seeing. So yeah. to answer your question, are we ready? Yes, it's, it's already there, it's proliferating. Um, all the stronger players are moving and consolidating with other stronger players.
0: Is that consolidation, so I think about the some of the growing markets in the space in general, right, the utility scale space is is there and grown and, you know, pretty mature. Residential solar is happening uh, at at sort of a rapid space where policy supports it, but that sort of middle sweet spot of distributed generation, commercial industrial, the deals aren't that thick to begin with, so there's a consolidation of these services and sometimes the cost of that consolidation. How's that going to affect the ability to really scale up a space like that where you need really almost every, every piece of the the capital sector work?
1: Well, because Well, I'll just say uh, how we work at Pillsbury. We uh, Because we have the expertise, and it's very deep, we can do things more efficiently and faster. Right. And so that, I think, speed and efficiency are very important in this space. And you have to be able to uh, react very quickly, uh, or else you can lose a deal. You know, you lose your snooze so uh, so that's really what we're seeing more of, and you just really you're, you're seeing a lot more expertise that can deploy uh, many different work streams all at once
0: yeah R- real, I want to go um you know you guys are looking not just at, at domestic u s but globally, but you mentioned some of the the trends of those those five different funds and sort of where you guys are today you know where How how is BlackRock beginning to manage moving out of, you know, I think what had traditionally been sort of the utility scale stuff into that mid-range distributed uh, sector?
1: Yeah,
2: I think we're still playing in both, to be clear. So I think we're just trying to stay with the evolution of where the market's going. Fundraising is slow and tough. And the idea that you're out marketing a strategy that works now, you find out the market's moved by the time, which is what happened essentially with our first fund. The market was moving as we were capital raising by the time we were in the deployment window return expectations had tightened, so we had to work harder to find the right, the right product and, and kind of middle of the fairway deal, which is what we'd sold with that first fund. For us, being, being global is increasingly important to get that relative value picture because you will always have some issue, be it expiration of tax credits, tariffs, the impact on, on domestic markets, and congestion or concentration risks in, in any particular market. So for us, trying to deploy what in this fund will be 2.5 billion of cash equity we need alternate avenues. We can't just be kind of banging our head down a, right. single, a single channel. Um, in terms of the different markets, like the U.S. is many, many different markets. And I actually think in the context of where other markets that historically have been much more straightforward, the European markets with feed-in tariffs, really bus bar, plug and play, you know what price you get. Day one, it's, it's pretty de-risked and very straightforward. The U.S. has always been a more competitive environment with RFPs, And that's where the rest of the world is going. So understanding that, we've obviously got much bigger, deeper liquid power markets. That's now proliferating as you look at RFPs. The the Iberian Peninsula is essentially a liquid wholesale power market. Mm -hmm. The Nord Pool, all the Nordic countries, are another liquid power market. They are starting to mirror what we're seeing in the US in terms of big commercial and industrial consumers that demand clean energy going direct by or to partner with projects. So I think a lot of the learnings that we've had from being here the last eight years, and we have a global team, but are now starting to, you know, the scars we have on our back is probably a better way of putting it, from (laughs) the last eight years are now starting to bear fruit in terms of how we think about international markets and opportunities. You know, we're really excited about APAC because it still has that long-dated investment-grade bus bar offtake. It's got other challenges that, you know, need to be worked through, but in terms of the relatively low risk, easy access, um, opportunities, their markets you can participate earlier in and kind of disintermediate local pools of capital that ultimately are cheaper mm-hmm. and they're the right buyer and holder for a core asset in that domestic currency. And then the other markets, we're pretty judicious in how we're kind of targeting capital deployments in spite of trying to deploy two and a half billion, but we're trying to find good partners. So across the five billion, we've got 27 partners that we've invested with. So we've got more than 260 projects now. So it's more than 10 projects of partners. So we want to find relationships with people that are like-minded, that understand the asset class, and that aren't necessarily looking for that kind of immediate quick book, but want to build a book and build business and build capital and value creation for themselves. And and we're happy, happy to share that, but we want to participate in that kind of environment. And particularly as you get into the smaller scale stuff and energy storage, which is much more nascent that mindset is really important to us to find a partner that wants to kind of be in it for the longer term create value and be a you know a leader and a player in the space it, that isn't necessarily thinking about how to flip this one five megawatt project and, and maximize the last dollar you know there's there's give and take in a broader relationship where you know the suboptimal deal gets done because some good deals are getting done and we're all making money in the long term when it's like much more kind of last dollar or last cent that's a really tough place to pay on a case by case basis
0: yeah it's interesting and, and- with Clean, clean Capital, we are a long-term player, and I think what's interesting is we've had these, we're buying up assets from folks that we're buying and flipping. The relationships with the off-takers many t- times are challenging because of that. They, You know, we—you have to go back and rebuild the trust of the facility manager at a university or uh, the you know, school superintendent where you may have 15 different systems, and that takes efforts because the previous owner... Never return their phone calls, and we're only interested in holding on long enough to flip out.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that's huge for us. The ESG and community engagement piece is massive because yeah. that's you know over 20 years, you're going to need to go back, and you're going to need yeah. them to work with you. So. Absolutely.
0: You know we we've seen so obviously solar rise sto- standalone storage is is really on the move, and you know the next phase that everyone continues to talk about is solar plus storage. You've got a unique background in the space and led one of the industries first financings of the integrated solar plus storage PPA uh, with an infrastructure investor. Can you paint a picture of what that deal looked like and some of the challenges you had sort of explaining uh, that new approach to an institutional investor?
3: Uh, so I guess the first thing I'd say about um, uh, solar plus storage is that it, it's not just twice as complicated as, as solar. It's like an order of magnitude more complicated than, than solar. When you think about the power flows, there's just a lot more places the electrons can go and a lot more losses they can experience along the way. Uh, it, it's not a single product uh, or, or value proposition you're making to the customer. You're making two or three and stacking them together in terms of energy Energy price arbitrage, backup resilience services, as well as uh, trying to provide a, a price of energy that's that's cheaper than retail grid price, uh, and then of course all of that is is manifested in a in a contract that is quite a bit more complex than your standard solar uh, PPA. So it's 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 a complicated business, um, but um, I think part of the question was uh, you know is 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 the market ripe, is the, is the time for the market uh, now? And I guess um, I, I would tell you that um, my first grader, uh, yesterday in, in, in a little town uh, a few miles north of Palo Alto where I live, uh, his school had no power uh, because of the, the PG&E outages, right. uh, of course, that uh, we're reading about in the newspapers. But school was open, so he went to a school all day long, uh, indoors, in the classroom, uh, without any power. Uh, the ironic thing is that just this past summer, uh, the stool, the school on a, on a hillside kind of on the back side of the campus, Installed quite a large uh, behind-the-meter solar system, so it would have been, and yeah, uh, you know, not that there's not complexity involved, and it would have required a, a decent-sized battery system to power a whole school for a whole day. But you can imagine that there there could have been interim solutions there. Uh, you know, what a missed opportunity to, um, you know, to power that school. Uh, and and quite a few parents kept their kids home from school that day, and you know that ripples through, of course but what a what a missed opportunity to uh, install a battery and keep that school going with power during the day you know obviously ten years of, of power outages in uh, in the state of california while we uh, while we fix the system is 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 not a good solution
0: it, that's interesting uh, we are actually living that situation right now with some of our portfolio we have uh, I won't name the schools, but schools in the district that are being affected by the pg outage. And it was amazing the response we got when we reached out to those superintendents and said, would you consider adding storage? And they said, let's talk tomorrow. <laughs> uh, and they didn't even really know what storage was, but they said, that, that I have the solar panels. It's not helping me today. PG is not there. So it, I, I have a theory that the pg crisis is going to help us leapfrog the transition more efficiently if we can get to not just new solar plus storage, retrofitting
3: solar storage. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more, uh, but I'll tell you that the, the vendors of uh, generators, diesel generators, are out there chasing the same business. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to be aggressive to get it. So I'm going to open
0: it up to the audience. Uh, first of all, if there are any questions, please use uh, the mic. And any questions for the audience? Emily over here is where we wait for a mic.
3: Good morning. My name is Sangeeta Ranade. I'm with the New York Power Authority,
1: and we are doing lots of projects with the governmental sector on, on the solar and storage side, but we're able to do that because we're a state agency, so there's a level of risk that we can adopt, and I was just curious what you would need to see in the storage market to feel like those contracts are bankable, um, just to get a sense of where you need the market to go to make that more scalable.
2: So, yeah, look, I think uh, it's a nascent market. I think what really helped solar accelerate the way it did, apart from the cost savings, is the fact that they were getting long-dated, low-risk contracts. I think if you really want to spur growth capital investors with low cost, particularly with low cost of capital, to avoid that, to skip the VC phase and the PE phase and to get the infrastructure capital, you want to see high-quality investment-grade contracts with duration. Batteries, generally speaking... At the moment, anywhere assumed to have about a 10-year useful life. So at least if you can match that and provide some economic return above kind of the cost of the facility, that's that's essentially what people are looking for. The challenge, one of the questions, whenever they get them back up, is around merchant standalone storage, and that's a really attractive notional market opportunity. You know, we saw the PJM Reg D market, which is a really shallow, high-value market, get completely saturated. they also changed the kind of the the signal or the the shape of construct that they wanted for the battery the configuration which essentially meant that newer technology was already going to make the existing infrastructure obsolete and that's the real risk with being merchant in in an asset class where the technology is improving so fast and getting cheaper so quickly. We all see how our iPhones perform when we use and abuse them um, I'm probably most guilty of that, given that mine's smashed. Um, but <laughs> if you do that with a battery, we don't know the use case. We don't know the OPEX. They're all interrelated. There's a lot of complexity to Duncan's point. Um, so you know, straightforward, homogeneous contracts with a, a decent piece of duration is what's going to get you the most capital flows that are at, at a cost of capital that makes it
0: efficient. Any other comments? On, oh, go ahead.
3: Uh, I, I was uh, in the, in the CNI space, I... I... I would certainly agree with you and, and when I was developing Solar Plus stor- storage projects a few years ago, we took the the NREL sort of standard uh, CNI contract, kind of downloaded it uh, from the website, and tried to make as few changes as possible in order to have it look and feel as as similar to a a standard CNI contract uh, as possible. In the the utility space, of course, the the contracts are all custom uh, regardless, and and that's not something you're going to change anytime soon. Uh, So I I think as long as there is a good, solid value proposition to the utility, um, you know, along with, uh, you know, a creditworthy counterparty, uh, you're going to be able to get through it.
2: Actually, that's a really good point. The one thing I would say as well: the use case for batteries is so broad, so you're going to need a, a contract that matches the use case. Otherwise, that mismatch again impacts useful life,
0: cost, opex, like functionality. Any other comments on the merchant associated
1: question? No. I'll just say we're we're seeing merchant uh, a lot with uh, spec data centers in the in solar and and uh, storage. We're seeing an uptick on that. In the back.
0: Okay, Uh, Emily Easley with Novus Clean Energy. John, this one's for you, especially since you're sitting next to your um, lovely partner there. I recently sat in a room with $72 billion of capital that they want to deploy in energy space and they don't know where to put it. And it's endowments, it's family offices, they're scared of oil and gas, and they're scared of the returns for clean energy. So from your perspective on clean capital, how do you continue to compete knowing that you're probably not the cheapest capital in the room, um, and drive those returns for your investors? That's a good question. So at Clean Capital, what we do is focus on that distributed generation space. And one thing I didn't talk about during the introduction is we've actually built a technology platform that we use to underwrite those deals really efficiently. I'm going to use a live example of a deal we did almost a year ago. It was 46 megawatts. It was 60 different assets in that transaction these are all operating solar projects and it got repeatedly passed over by a lot of the institutional investors because it was just too much to do diligence we're able to take that that technology our technology allows us to see into those deals in a way that others can't and quickly and efficiently underwrite them and then come back and say look you know Understand that this is a lot easier to do one big deal, that's utility, but look at all the value opportunities across this portfolio that you can optimize and drive future value. So you'd have a great base case here, but look at what you can do by tweaking this and tweaking that. Great example, people that have been owning this thing were paying tens of thousands of dollars a year, uh, almost $100,000 a year, to mow the lawn at one of the solar systems that was in the desert right? And we're like, we called the O&M company and the next day we're like, hey, that contract is done. Thank you. But it takes that level of in the weeds and not everyone can do that uh, and that's our value proposition at Clean Capital is we can get in the weeds not just when we buy the projects because as we talked about earlier, we are long-term owners, offers representing the other capital, but we take a really active asset optimization example. So the school superintendent in pg e that we called last week it wasn't the first time he heard it from us. Uh, the, the previous owner, this is a, a system that was all tilt, uh, uh, tilt access to solar and all the accesses were in different directions when we bought it. And he said, I'm not an engineer, but I know that's not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, we actually got in, fixed the system, and then continued to build a relationship, providing, for instance, curriculum to the schools that they can use for uh, educating folks on solar. Nothing we developed, stuff that we have sort of found it online, built that long-term relationship. So when we call him up, he answers our call and is willing to sort of work with us. So that that is our strategic advantage in the space. Other questions? I'm going to go to the second question here, which I think is interesting. Are we in danger of building too much too early? Other industries, essentially, especially telecoms, did this and caused sort of the the dot-com bubble. I'm going to first turn to uh, Mona, who's been in the industry for a while, and get your thoughts on that.
1: I think it's certainly true that we're moving faster than expected, yeah. uh, but we're seeing both the, you know, there's, there's drivers that are pushing this to go forward. I mean, what I was, the EV market is huge. What I was talking about earlier with mobility is really a driver in this. So there's this you know, with the cost declines together with the demand in energy and mobility is really driving this. Do I think that we're in danger of building too much too early? I don't think so because uh, they still need to be bankable and we still need certainty and, uh, you know, good money is not going to go after bad money and it's very difficult from my perspective I'm not going to work on a deal that I know is not going to happen, you know. So, right. um, so I don't think it's, it's the exuberance that we saw during the dot-com crisis at all. Yeah.
3: To the best of my knowledge, the vast majority of, of energy storage contracts or integrated solar plus storage contracts are fully contracted, uh, fully contracted, uh, you know, offtake. Uh, I'm not aware of very many projects that are pure merchant players, so I don't, I don't see there being a risk of an overbuild in the near term.
0: Yeah, interesting. So I do want to end. We're, we're a little bit over time, but but I do want to just put one last sort of challenge out to the the, the panelists. And if you look back, you know, again, going back to the series study, we need to get to a trillion dollars. You know, folks, that you saw in the in the uh, poll, uh, see that's that's possible in the in the next five years. But there's a lot of barriers to get there. What are just kind of quickly? What is one? What's the uh, that sort of unspoken challenge that you sort of see in the market that's not talked about at a conference like these to get there? And then two, give us some hope on why we can get there. And I'll start with with Rail. Uh, the,
2: the challenge is vested interests, right? So it's it's the incumbents, rate basing, what's already been approved. Maybe it's no longer efficient. It struggles to deal with the intermittency of on-grid renewables um, obviously storage has a role to play in helping mitigate that. I think more diversified generation or consumption moving to kind of a, a co-location model has a role to play in, in modifying that, but it's hard for folks to let go. Like you've seen FPL resists incredibly strongly in their footprint having renewables in spite of being one of the biggest renewables developers through their, their unregulated arm. But now that they're actively moving in and building things to go to clients and say, you want renewables? We're building renewables, buy yeah. from us. So, I think there are lots of ways to facilitate it. I think that the biggest challenge, look most of the, the growth through 2050 is coming in emerging markets in renewables. So as we talk about OECD markets and our market here in North America, it's dealing with the incumbents and the fact that there's legacy sunk costs that either need to be recovered or written off. And that's, that's a difficult ask in political cycles, for regulators, for, for lots of different reasons. But I do think the narrative from from states, from cities, from commercial industrial off takers, and from you know, the consumer base, people are just starting to really push and demand accountability and demand that people take steps on this front. So I do think I think that's the positive, and I think you know, government organisations are starting to open the checkbook for the asset class to try and solve solutions, and you know, that could be, you know, big banks stopping buying bonds of. of of banks or other companies and starting to focus on green bond procurement to change the orientation around how people are thinking and that they give more of a sustainable kind of long-term mindset.
0: Thank you. Mona. Um,
1: I think that we, I mean, we want to have bankable deals and we want long-term certainty in the space. And I think one of the challenges that we have is that we have here in the U.S., mixed policy signals from the federal level and from the state level. And you'll see certain states that have really, really advanced the cause, and they're attracting a lot more uh, clean energy projects. And there's other states that have not. But um, I'm hopeful that uh, based on the demand from consumers, from corporations on the Hill, that we will... there's we will change our our long-term federal policy uh, for uh, carbon-free electricity, that we will will also see the need on a more global basis for grid modernization, which is also gonna propel uh, the policy, and also uh, expansion of RPS and CPS, uh, together with uh, reforms that have already been discussed Minority already uh, both at the federal and state level on uh, permitting and siting.
0: Interesting. One just follow up to that. If, As someone who's been in the policy space and worked in the advocacy space, I challenge the audience. Uh, one of the things we did at Clean Capital is we tagged an intern to go through all of our projects and identify which congressional district it is in. And it was amazing to see the spread of districts, both Democratic and Republican. And then we sent a letter recently to those members advocating for the ITC. It's a very simple job, literally driven by an intern. Uh, and, and it's something that has a great voice to say, hey, we are providing jobs and support in your hometown. Please support this credit that's gonna make a difference. It's on all of us to, be in, to make that fight and make the case that the policies are in place for us to get there. I'm not sure it's gonna happen before 2020, but we should be advocating for it anyway, so.
3: Sims. So uh, a short time ago, we signed a 130-megawatt um, PPA uh, in the state of Alabama. And uh, Alabama has no renewable portfolio standards. It really has no uh, renewable energy incentives uh, at the state level uh, at all. And we won that contract because in Alabama, solar is the cheapest-priced New form of energy, so I think there's uh, and and as a relative light source uh, and light source BP have been around for eight or ten years, but in the U.S. we're a relatively new player. We've been in existence in the U.S. for two or two and a half years, uh, but with a um, you know with a strong balance sheet and a strong brand, um, you know we're seeing tremendous growth, and so I'm not really worried about the growth opportunities. Uh, I I think. Uh, uh, I think certainly uh, policy with the, the ITC and with tariffs and all that sort of stuff uh, is disruptive and and presents a challenge to the industry. But um, you know that uh, I think more. Uh, I, I just hope that some some of the exogenous factors like uh, support for uh, coal and and nuclear doesn't sort of take root and and cause a problem for all us. Right. Well, ask for
0: a round of applause for our panelists. Thank you so much. You can see the kind of conversations we have at Experts Only, so I sort of challenge you to go to our website, cleancapital.com. You can get more episodes. Just recently had on the CEO of Proterra Bus, have the chief environmental officer of Microsoft talking about some of the interesting trends that they're seeing in the space. Uh, And I want to thank you uh, for the audience. Thanks. Appreciate it, Want to thank the team for Solar Storage and Finance USA for letting us be part of this conference. It's a great conference of transactional focused individuals. Look forward to being part of it next year. And want to thank our team uh, and Carly Batten, our producer. You can always get more episodes at cleancapital.com. I look forward to continuing the conversation. thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation,
1: and finance with you.